a little creek flowed beside the house where I grew up before it flowed on down past the house of my grandparents. And in the late 1920s and the 1930s, my grandmother washed clothes for her family of seven on a, a washboard by that creek. But then innovation came to her life in the form of a tin tub with an electric ringer attached to it. And so my grandmother could wash the clothes in the tub and then feed them through those very close-moving cylinders of the ringer. And the ringer would squeeze all the water out of the clothes, and it was much better than squeezing out the clothes by hand. And that's all well and good until you break a lot of buttons in the ringer or until your finger gets caught in it, which mine did, or your hair gets caught in it, which Kathy's hair did. Not in my grandmother's ringer and her grandmother's ringer because we were just little kids. Kathy and I don't have the same grandmother. <laughs> I know y'all know I'm from West Virginia, so I want to make that clear. We're not that kind of family. Anyway, it hurt. <laughs> and so you look forward to more innovation. And eventually my grandmother got a modern washing machine and an electric dryer. Innovation made her life easier and better. I think in the course of the lives of my grandparents, they went from a candle world to an electric world. From a horse and buggy world to an automobile world. From an outdoor plumbing world to an indoor plumbing world. From a, from a grounded world to a world of flight. Innovation. You and I love it. We've come not only to expect it, but to demand it. We can't wait for the next generation of uh, the iPhone to come out and, and all that it's going to do for our lives. We can't imagine a world that isn't constantly improving making things better, making things more effective. We're conditioned by innovation to believe that what we have isn't good enough, or at least it's not as good as it could be. But what if? What if what we have is enough? What if what we already have is better than anything that we could devise? What if what we have is unimprovable or uninnovatable? I made those words up, but you, you get the point. I want you to know we, we actually have that thing, actually those things, and we have them in the means of grace, the means of grace that God gave his church over 2,000 years ago. They don't need to be innovated. And because God gave the means of grace, they cannot be improved upon. Now listen, I believe that with all my heart. I believe with all my heart, and that's why I call us today, though you'll think I'm crazy, to be people who are always moving backward in a world that appears to be moving forward. I'll call us to be people who are moving backward in a world that appears to be moving forward. I know that suggesting that to you sounds like committing church suicide, doesn't it? Moving backward, especially in a world that has declared that the past 
must be derided, not in part, but the whole. C.S. Lewis refers to this kind of declaration as chronological snobbery. And he defines that as an uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. That's the world we live in. Forget the past. But I know that going back is not suicide because God is sovereign and God has determined that these means of grace are what we need. They're all we need. Therefore, it's not true that we need to innovate in order to be vital or relevant. It is true that going back is actually being progressive. In order to move forward, we've got to go backward. We must look to the ancient paths. G.K. Chesterton said real development, real progress is not leaving things behind as on a road, but drawing life from them as from a root. You and I draw life from God's means of grace. And that's what we're going to be talking about not only this morning, but for uh, the, the next few weeks to come. The means of grace. And we're going to find that as we look together at Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to take those out. If you don't have one, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. Uh, and if you don't want to do that, the, the passage is also printed in your bulletin. So when you found Acts chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, this is the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is a means of grace. Through it, you bless us. And so we ask now that through the power of the Spirit, you would bless this reading and hearing and preaching of your word. Nourish our souls through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Since we're beginning a new series on the means of grace, the way of wisdom seems to be to define what I mean by the means of grace. And so I'm going to allow the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 88, to do that for us this morning. Here's the question. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. 
the Word of God to sacraments, prayer. Those are the means of grace. They are the channels by which God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives His grace to us. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 talks about the riches, the riches of God's grace that He lavished upon us. The means of grace are the ways that God sends that flow of grace into our lives and into our church. And it's not just a trickle that flows to the means of grace. It's a lavish flow. And that's why we see the means of grace are present at the very first gathering of the very first group of the very first believers in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Look in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There they are. The apostles' teaching, that's the word of God. The breaking of bread was not only fellowship around a table, sharing a meal together, but it's also very specific. The breaking of bread, and it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. And so here's the sacrament. And then the prayers, the means of grace, they're all here. And according to verse 42, this is what they devoted themselves to. Who's the they? Look back up in verse 41. The they are the people who responded in faith as the apostle Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people believed. 3,000 people were baptized. There's the other sacrament. But here's the thing. It's not what Peter anticipated. It's not what Peter asked for, and I think it's safe to say that, that this is not even what Peter wanted. Follow me for, for, for just a moment. And let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. These verses record for us the very last meeting and the very last conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples on earth. Immediately after this, Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. Now listen to what the apostles asked Jesus in this moment. It's in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Wow. Where, where did that question come from? I mean, I know where I think it came from had they asked it when they first started following Christ. Because that's what they wanted then. They were looking for an earthly kingdom. They were looking for Rome to be defeated, to be punished for oppressing God's people for so long. They were looking for Jesus to reign over an earthly kingdom. And probably what they wanted most were the positions of prominence and power that they believed they would hold in that kingdom. Now, that's what they wanted then. But now, after Jesus' crucifixion, after his resurrection, after Jesus has given to them the great commission, the disciples still want an earthly kingdom? Now look at how Jesus responds to their question. He repeats himself. He repeats himself about what he wants, about what he desires, about what he loves, and he takes them back once again to the great commission. Look in verse 8. 
Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Sounds like the Great Commission, right? When Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Jesus continues, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, go to all nations and make disciples. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's repeating himself. Through repetition, he's reorienting the affections and the wants and the desires and the loves of the disciples. So now, when the newly spirit-indwelled, spirit-empowered Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ as a result, it must have been an aha moment for Peter. Lord, so this is what you meant. This is what you want. This is what you love. And never again do we hear the disciples asking that question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We never see them working toward that goal. It seems to have been forgotten because... Their affections are now in line with Christ's. They have no need to innovate, to do something new, to do something different, to do something better or newer or fresher. They're no longer looking for the next big thing. And the same thing is true for us. When you and I want what Christ wants, when our affections or his affections, we no longer feel the need to innovate. We don't need to look for the next big thing. And that's what the means of grace accomplish for us. They get our affections in line with the affections of Christ. Because Jesus meets us in the means of grace. When we attend to them over, and over and over and over and over and over again in worship. When we study the Word of God together. When we come around the table of the Lord together. When we pray the prayers together over and over and over and over again. Then our affections are oriented to what Jesus wants and to what Jesus loves. And so it should come as no surprise to us that the disciples to whom Jesus has had to repeat himself over and over and over again until they loved what he loved, it's no surprise that immediately, without hesitation, without delay, without even an intervening verse in the text of Scripture to catch our breath, they move immediately from 3,000 people came to faith in Christ to 3,000 people gathered around the means of grace. Boom! That's what it is. And lest you believe that these ancient means of grace are ineffective, which is widely held belief today, look in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look, 
We don't need anything new. We don't need something fresh or something different. Here's what we need. The word, the sacraments, prayer, together, over and over and over again. The way forward for you as an individual and for me as an individual and the way forward for us as a church is to go back. We don't need to find ways to innovate. We don't need to find ways to innovate in order to be relative. Because there's nothing irrelevant about the means of grace. There's nothing stale about the means of grace that need to be freshened up. Unless, of course, you believe there's something stale about the Spirit of God. Do you believe that? Your answer should be no. There is nothing stale about the Spirit of God. I love it how when the Spirit of God comes to indwell His people on the day of Pentecost, His coming is accompanied by the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And is it not the wind that blows away what's stagnant and brings what's fresh and crisp and clean? Is that not why we open our windows wide to let the breeze blow through our houses, right? Especially after we've been sick or after we've cooked fish, right? We want the wind to blow through and bring freshness. That's the Spirit of God. We're people who are truly indwelled by the Spirit of God, attend to the means of grace, it will never be stale or rote or boring because God always meets His people in these places. And God always pours out His grace through these means. And, and there's life in them and there's grace in them and there's freshness about them. We must go back to and be committed to these ancient ways. I find it a bit ironic. And I confess that I'm part of the problem. But in these past decades, when the church has attempted to look more and more like the world in order to attract the world, when the church adopted the marketing strategies of the business world and the standards and styles of the entertainment world, statistics show that the church is considered more irrelevant now than ever. How can our God be other than when we are always attempting to present him as the same as instead of looking like the world? In the hope that we'll attract the world, perhaps we should commit ourselves to the otherworldliness to which we're called. Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. If people could find in the world what they needed, they wouldn't need the church. So then why should the church look like the world in order to attract people to it who can't find what they need in the world in the first place? And please don't ask me to repeat that. I'm going to quote Michael Horton. And then I'm going to tell a, a little brief story about Jeremiah. And then we're going to be done. So we can get to the Lord's table, this means of grace. Michael Horton writes in his book, Ordinary, Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World. American Christianity is a story of perpetual upheavals 
in churches and individual lives, starting with the extraordinary conversion experience, our lives are motivated by a constant expectation for the next big thing. We're growing bored with the ordinary means of grace, attending church week in and week out, doctrines and disciplines that have shaped faithful Christian witness in the past are often marginalized or substituted with newer fashions or methods. The new and improved may dazzle us for a moment, but soon they become, quote, unquote, so last year. We've got to go back to go forward. And now the story of Jeremiah. By the time God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah, Jerusalem is a city is centuries old. It's been the capital city of God's people for centuries. The temple that Solomon built, centuries old. And during those long years and those long centuries, God's people moved on. Come on. Jerusalem is old. The temple a relic from the past, God's people have progressed past wanting what God wants. Nevertheless, God speaks tenderly to his people. He speaks affectionately to them. Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 3. God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, and how you followed me. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. That's God's love for his people and his people's love for the Lord. God provided for them plentifully, bountifully. God offers himself to them as, quote, a fountain of living waters. That's God's offer. I will be a fountain of living waters. But God's people reject God's offer. <laughs> they choose instead to innovate to try a new way, a fresh way. And so here's their brilliant plan. Instead of standing in the free-flowing fountain of God's affection and provision and protection, they choose instead to hew out-of-rock cisterns. Not easy. Chipping away at the rock to make a little cistern hopefully to catch a little bit of water in the desert. I told you it was a brilliant plan. Even had they caught water in their cisterns, guess what? The cisterns collect what stagnant water tends to collect. Yuck, right? But it gets even worse. When the water does come, they discover that their cisterns were broken and couldn't even hold water. But still, they wouldn't go back. Back to the Lord. They continued instead to innovate. Ah, they thought, we'll try a different way of being in this world. And they conclude that other cultures in the world must have it right. And so off they go, Scripture says, to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile. Off they go, Scripture says, to Assyria to drink the water from the Euphrates. I don't have time to go through the entirety of the first six chapters in Jeremiah to describe what God's people do. But all we need to know 
is that God is always calling his people back. He says to them, return back to the Lord. Not through innovation. Not through something new. Nothing cutting edge that exists just for their peculiar culture. Nothing progressive. Nothing like that. Instead, God says to them, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Stand by the road and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. The ancient way, the ancient path is the good way. The ancient path has rest for their souls. You and I will never, never be on the wrong path when together we attend well to the means, the ancient means of God's grace. And we're going to talk in a, a subsequent sermon about what that phrase, attend well, means. So buckle up. But the way forward is the way that takes us backward. And we'll never progress further than when we go backward. Because through the means of grace that God has ordained, He orients our thoughts, your thoughts, my thoughts, and our affections, what we think and what we love, so that we think His thoughts and we love His loves. And that's beautiful when we think God's thoughts and when we love what God loves. And it's life-changing and family-changing and culture-changing and world-changing. And that's the way forward for us. So let's go backward together, together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your un changing character, for your unchanging ways, for your unchanging truth. Nothing about them needs to change. Father, we pray that you would help us love what you have given to us, the means of grace, that we would devote ourselves to them, to your word, to the sacraments, to prayer. Father, convince us that these things that you give are all we need in this world for life and for godliness. Father, keep us ever from straying from them for our good, but mostly for your glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.